My presentation today um, is about my recently published edited book, Citizenship in Transnational Perspective, Australia, Canada and New Zealand, published, as Gareth pointed out, by Pablo Macmillan um, last year. It is based on an international symposium on citizenship in a transnational perspective, um, so the title didn't really change much, um, co-convened by Professor Janine Brody and myself that was held at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on the 6th or 7th of July 2016. Um, so actually it's going to be um, nearly two years actually since the symposium um, that it's based on took place, which is quite scary, as it didn't seem that long ago. Um, it brought together leading international scholars from Canada, Australia and New Zealand to explore citizenship in a transnational perspective, focusing on the three countries through the two overarching themes of ethnicity and indigeneity. The presenters at the symposium, and now the contributors to this collection, approach the subject from a range of disciplinary perspectives, historical, legal, political, and sociological. Therefore, this book, in my opinion, makes an important and unique contribution to the existing literature through its transnational and multidisciplinary perspectives. The contributors are engaged in cutting-edge research, as some argue for a post-citizenship world, others questioning the very concept itself, or its application to Indigenous nations. So, the 21st century has witnessed multiple and ever more recalcitrant challenges to conventional citizenship models and policies that typically understand citizenship as a package of rights, which are universally bestowed upon individuals as members of a distinct national community, residing within and defined by the boundaries of a modern territorial state. Whether such membership is a result of an accident of birth or achieved through some form of preparationary residence and mandatory citizenship test, conventional citizenship models have advanced the idea that there is a definitive alignment between identities, citizenship rights and territorial boundaries. Even in cases where a national state contains diverse ethnic or religious groups, citizenship conveys the idea of a shared identity rooted in universal rights and obligations. Critics of this model rightly point out that this promise of universal universality was never fully achieved, especially in settler societies, where national citizenship regimes were premised, in the first instance, on the denial and suppression of indigenous forms of nationhood and understandings of political membership and community obligation. In the contemporary moment, conventional models of citizenship are further challenged by transnationalism, the apparent waning in significance of economic, social and national boundaries in a globalised world has accelerated the mobility and migration of diverse populations, the incidence of denizens and dual citizens, and the multiplica multiplication of identities and deep diversities. The edited collection brings together leading scholars whose work on citizenship in settler societies moves beyond the idea of inclusion, fitting into extant um, citizenship regimes, to innovative models of inclusivity, refitting existing models, to reflect the multiple identities of an increasingly post-national era and to promote the recognition of indigenous citizenships and rights, and to promote, uh, so that was suppressed as a formative condition of citizenship in these societies. The thematic goals of this edited collection are threefold. Pages slightly out of order there. Um, first, the edited collection seeks to explore the value of comparative and cross-disciplinary analyses of citizenship regimes in settler societies. Australia, Canada and New Zealand are generally subsumed under the category of Anglo-American democracies, 
and are understood as most similar systems because of their similar um, colonial origins and the Westminster-style government. They are thus, in the language of comparative research design, most similar systems. The contributors to this edited collection, however, understand their similarity differently as former British settler societies, which have shared similar movements in the development of citizenship regimes. These include the suppression and current resurgence of Indigenous claims for distinct forms of recognition, citizenship and governance, a transformation from a British imperial model of political community to nationally constituted models of civic citizenship that are sufficiently robust to incorporate successive waves of migration and their attendant diversities, and the contemporary challenges of transnationalism and what some term as deep diversity. Second, the edited collection seeks to enhance comparisons of settler-indigenous relations that have followed quite distinct trajectories in the three countries under review. In particular, the book tracks three different and largely unsuccessful models of citizenship, as well as contemporary pressures to refit existing citizenship regimes to accommodate indigenous demands for ranga teratanga, or self-governance, especially in New Zealand and Canada. Third, the edited collection explores these challenges of transnationalism on conventional and nationally constituted citizenship regimes. In particular, contributors to this edited collection explore the multiplication of identities in migrant communities and different forms of belonging in national communities, dual citizens, temporary and permanent residents, refugees, etc. Several chapters focus on the growing tension between the pressures of transnationalism and the increasing securitization and conditionality placed on national citizenship. The edited collection includes distinguished citizenship scholars from a broad range of cross-disciplinary and cross-sector perspectives to address these thematic goals. A particular highlight is Augie Fleris, who has published extensively on, on indigeneity, multiculturalism and trans-post-nationalism, and his comparative work on Canada, New Zealand and Australia sets the frame for the more intensive thematic chapters that follow. The edited collection is organised into sections around the above themes, so Flaris and Diova Stasilis's chapters offer a truly transnational perspective on the subject of citizenship. Brian Galligan, myself and Kate McMillan explore the evolution and trajectory of citizenship regimes in settler societies. Tim Rouse, Joyce Green, Carwin Jones, Paul Spoonley and Mamari Stevens study settler indigenous citizenships, and Andrew Marcus, Kim Rubinstein, Yasmin Abulaban, and Audrey Macklin focus on transnationalism, deep diversity, and securitization. Bit of a tongue twister there. Um, so, going into more detail, according to Augie Flores in his chapter, the accelerated realities of a transnational era are, are challenging conventions conventional notions even, of citizenship in ways yet to be determined. At the crux of any reassessment is the need to move beyond static, singular and state-centric notions of citizenship that, has that have historically informed national models, but can no longer abide by the multiple modalities of belonging and identity in a transnational world of globalisation. The internationalisation of, human, of universal human rights, surges in ethno-nationalism, the intensification of diverse diversities, and proliferation of diasporic communities. The chapter addresses the reframing of citizenship in the 21st century, what it means to be a citizen in a world of post-trans and isms, and what constitutes a meaningful citizenship from a transnational perspective, used in the broadest sense. Across the settler domains of Canada, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and Australia, 
The focus of Diova's Tassilis' contribution is on how dual nationals access safety and services in two domains, to negotiate their security in the context of the 2006 Lebanon War, and to access healthcare and thus construct social citizenship in two national spaces and in more localised settings in Lebanon and Canada, Australia. While as citizens of Canada and Australia, these dual nationals generally express gratitude for the extraordinary evacuation services provided by the country of their more robust citizenship. Some citizens caught in heavily bombed areas felt that more should have been done to bring them to safety, however. Similarly, while most citizens predictably rated the healthcare in Australia and Canada more highly than in Lebanon, some negotiated the deterioration of services in these countries by seeking private but more accessible services in Lebanon. Brian Gallagher's chapter examines the main features of Australian citizenship and the way it has changed from an older Australia that was predominantly white and British to be more diverse and pluralistic, infused by decades of multicultural migration. The chapter is organised in sections to highlight aspects of the changing character of Australian citizenship, the development of citizenship institutions from British subject to Australian citizen, the founders, view on, the founders' views on real citizenship that underlay formal subject status, white Australia that shaped nation and citizenship until the early 1970s, Aboriginal exclusion as citizens without rights, citizenship and multiculturalism, bless you, and some concluding remarks um, on citizenship in modern Australia. These are all large topics um, that I'll only briefly and selectively refer to in highlighting aspects of Australia's changing citizenship institutions and culture. In my contribution, I argue that in the 1950s, English-speaking Canada very much identified itself as an integral part of a wider British world. Canada's bicultural nature with the French Canadians complicated the self-identity in Canada. However, by the 1970s, this British world had come to an end. During this period, citizenship in Canada was redefined in a significant way from being an ethnic British-based one to a more civic-founded one, which was more inclusive of other ethnic groups and apparently Indigenous peoples. The chapter argues that this redefinition of citizenship took place primarily in the context of this major shift in national identity, focusing on key external events that led to this process. It then explores pieces of citizenship legislation and other moves which illustrate the redefinition of citizenship during this period. Kate McMillan in her chapter maintains that in the mid-1970s, New Zealand, Canada and Australia all ceased using British subject as a criterion for national voting rights, in all three countries, this represented a decisive step away from the British imperial model of political community towards a nationally constituted one. Unlike Australia and Canada, however, New Zealand did not replace British subject with national citizenship criterion. It simply removed British subject, leaving the existing residency requirement intact. New Zealand became and remains the only country in the world to allocate national voting rights to all permanent resident non-citizens after one year's residence. This was a radical decision with far-reaching complications for the incorporation of immigrants into the national political community. According to Carwin Jones and Craig Glinkhorn in their contribution, Article 3 of the Treaty of Waitangi, signed by Maori leaders and the British Crown in 1840, stated that Maori would enjoy all the rights and privileges of British subjects. This new citizenship of a British colony was laid over the top of Maori forms of social organisation and understandings of nationhood and citizenship. The New Zealand state has struggled to come to terms with indigenous forms of citizenship and over time has changed its approach to Maori citizenship to try to address this. 
The chapter considers the nature of Maori citizenship today in the era of Treaty of Waitangi settlements, exploring how citizenship in this period of transitional justice is informed by political, social and justice dimensions of conceptions of Maori citizenship over time. Tim Rouse in his chapter argues that the problem of the nation's moral continuity must be resolved in any Australian statement of apology to Indigenous Australians if they are to be reimagined as citizens of the nation. His chapter compares several Australian statements from members of Australia's political elite, showing um, some of the ways that a nation and its victims' citizens were narratively configured in the, in the 1990s. The chapter then turns to several Indigenous approaches to narrating the national and the personal past, illustrating that Indigenous standpoints vary by generation and by orientations to Christianity. Joyce Green maintains in her contribution that citizenship is considered an evolving normative good, a relationship between citizen and state that, was produced, that has produced greater degrees of democratic involvement and accountability and of state commitment to citizen well-being, including human rights. Yet for Indigenous peoples, states are fundamentally agents of oppression, maintaining an imposed and illegitimate sovereignty against Indigenous peoples through a colonial settler order legitimated by racist myths and policy. The kind-led, gentle colonialism of equitable um, inclusion in state citizenship is definitively incorporation into, not liberation from, the settler state. In her chapter, Mamari Stevens argues that Māori have persistently sought autonomy in decision-making regarding Māori social outcomes and in identifying Māori conceptions of citizenship that may differ from universalist understandings of citizenship. Language-based evidence and social and legal history suggests a Māori understanding of citizenship that is not only protective, but perhaps also positive, confirming rational, relational ways even of doing things under a Māori authority. One of those ways of doing things has been using collective processes in order to assist Māori individuals and collectives to attain basic physical and material well-being, or welfare. An examination of welfare law and development in New Zealand is able to reveal both Māori persistence in having Māori notions of citizenship fully heard and the sheer difficulty in having such notions recognised more broadly. According to Paul Spoonley, in his contribution, New Zealand is a classic settler society that has experienced distinct phases of citizenship development in its modern history. Colonisation saw the erasure of the preceding sovereignty of the indigenous Māori. However, by the 1970s, the country began to debate nation nationality and citizenship in ways that differed, in part, from other modern liberal, including settler societies. It is this history and those departures which are the focus here. It has two elements, a preeminent focus on a, on a biculturalism, which recognises the indigeneity of the original settlers, Māori, and the shift in the ethnic diversity that resulted from changes to immigration policy in the 1980s, so that a significantly enhanced diversity has altered debates about identity, nationalism and citizenship. Ooh, jumping the gun there. Um, in his chapter, um, Andrew Marcus maintains that it, Australia has a long record of inclusive, inclusive citizenship and continues to maintain generous access um, to citizenship, although not for the increasing number of workers on long-stay visas. Recent data indicates that an estimated 75% to 80% of eligible residents are naturalised, with the current uh, annual rate of naturalisation above 130,000, so it's a pretty good going. 
The analysis in this chapter is based in large part on the annual Scanlon Foundation surveys of social cohesion. The surveys indicate that Australia is seen as a good country in which to settle, with high levels of belonging, life satisfaction, and parallel high take-up of citizenship. But identity in the postmodern world is multifaceted, with the majority who identify as an Australian also seeing themselves as world citizens, which would not be um, a popular term with Theresa May, um, linked to their country of birth and just an individual. Kim Rubinstein's contribution argues that Australian citizenship has travelled from an acceptance and foundation of a form of cosmopolitan or supranational citizenship to one of vulnerability for dual citizens. In doing so, it changes the relationship between the individual and the state, reverting Australian citizens back to their subject-like status in principle, even if not in title. According to Yasmin Abulabin, in her chapter, one of the most potent legal re uh, regimes governing the division of advantage and disadvantage between peoples, uh, peoples at global and national levels is citizenship. Utilising government documents, print media accounts and secondary sources, her chapter examines the evolution of Canada's immigration policy between 2006 and 2016. Overall, this period has been characterised by greater exclusion. This is because policy reforms in the past decade have, have included numerous changes introduced by the Conservative government of Prime Minister Stephen Harper in power from 2006 to 2015, which combined to make Canadian citizenship harder to obtain and easier to lose. Reduce uh, the number of refugee claimants and control the flows of refugees in the face of growing numbers globally and intensify the surveillance of borders and belonging in ways that are racialized and gendered. In her contribution, Audrey Macklin focuses on the evolution of Canadian citizenship under the Conservative government also of 2006-2015 and makes three claims. First, the Conservatives systematically resiled from the citizenship policies that typify a settler society. And this was congruent with parallel changes to Canadian immigration policy. Second, citizenship law furnished an ideal platform for staging the rebranding of Canada as Warrior Nation, a pet Conservative project. Third, the role played during the fall 2015 federal election by one particular citizenship policy, the ban on face covering while swearing the citizenship oath, reveals a lingering and perhaps chronic ambiguity regarding Canadian citizenship in an era where forces of globalisation and nationalist retrenchment impose competing pressures on state citizenship regimes. So, several edited collections have been published in the past surrounding citizenship, even one looking at the three countries of this book. However, none of them explore citizenship in Australia, Canada and New Zealand through the twin prisms of ethnicity and indigeneity. And they certainly do not address the contemporary issues that uh, this edited collection does, such as dual citizenship and security. Therefore, this book, in my opinion again, makes a unique and important contribution to the field. The, mass, the vast majority, if not all, of the chapters in this edited collection situate themselves in the settler colonial context. This um, essentially argues um, pages there, uh, that the Australian, Canadian and New Zealand settler societies were established through the dispossession of indigenous nations, which were all pre already present in those territories. Although the effect of this colonisation process was extremely devastating, a majority of these indigenous nations still exist, and most importantly, their current situation has to be understood through the context of their experience of European colonialism, which has lasting effects to this day. So it's not just a historical phenomenon. The issue of treaties between indigenous peoples and the settler colonial state and citizenship is also another important theme in this edited collection. 
Several of the chapters discuss this issue. Specifically, Canada and New Zealand have them, but Australia does not. And I was putting it very simplistically, um, but yeah, I will do that because um, I'm a historian and we deal with generalizations. Um, this has certainly had an impact on relations between the settler colonial state and indigenous peoples in the three countries. Although the Canadian and New Zealand experiences are also quite different, as a settler colonial state in Canada only concluded treaties with certain indigenous nations, not all, so some, some uh, clarification there. The indigenous nations in British Columbia are a prominent example. In contrast, in New Zealand, the Treaty of Waitangi was regarded for the longest time as being an agreement between the settler colonial state there and Maori. Although, again, the Treaty uh, of Waitangi was not one with all Maori peoples, but only some. So perhaps there might be more commonality between the Canadian and New Zealand experiences here. Thinking about linkages between some of the chapters in this collection, Brian Galligan, myself, and Kate McMillan, although focusing on Australia, Canada, and New Zealand respectively, share a common emphasis on the shift away from a British-centred identity in these three settler societies in the post-Second World War period, and how this change was reflected in citizenship legislation in the 1970s. Tim Rouse and Joyce Green in their chapters question the very basis of citizenship for Indigenous peoples in Australia and Canada, respectively. They instead refer to an imagined narrative of citizenship for Indigenous nations. This relates to Benedict Anderson's writings on imagined communities, whereby individuals believe, or are made to believe, that they are part of a mythical and usually benign community or nation, which has defined boundaries. However, as the experience of Indigenous peoples in Australia, Canada and New Zealand demonstrates for much of the history of these settler colonial societies, they were in, fa in fact excluded and state interactions with them were anything but benign. This is certainly something to keep in mind, especially when reading these two chapters, but the book in general as well. Joyce Green, Carbin Jones and Craig Lincoln and Mamari Stevens also share a similar approach to indigeneity in Canada and New Zealand, through their emphasis on the crucial role that indigenous nations in these settler societies must play themselves in the definition of their own citizenship. Unfortunately, this is something they have been denied for um, centuries, much to the detriment of those settler societies, in my opinion. Without this, they all argue that citizenship is not feasible for indigenous nations in the settler societies of Canada and New Zealand. Paul Spoonley and Carwin Jones and Craig Lincoln also both survey the history of citizenship for Māori in New Zealand from the late 19th century to the present. And Spoonley and Macmillan also explore the increasing diversity of the, New of the New Zealand population, especially due to large levels of Asian migration. Yasmin Abulabin and Audrey Macklin have a commonality in their focus on the recent citizenship regime in Canada, most notably during the Harper government. So, Harper Conservative government of 2006 to 15. However, they both complement each other as Abu Laban takes a more political approach, whereas Macklin adopts a legalistic one. This is, of course, a reflection of their respective disciplinary backgrounds. Okay, so that is all I wanted to say about the overarching themes of the book. Um, so, what I'm going to do next, uh, very briefly, um, is just give some thanks. Um, as I said, this is, this is a book watch. Um, to people and institutions that made this book possible. So, as I pointed out um, at the beginning, this edited collection is based on an international symposium that was held at the University of Alberta, U of A, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. It brought together leading international scholars from Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Many of the thanks for the collection are therefore the same as those for the symposium. In terms of the idea of the symposium coming to fruition, I would like to give a heartfelt thanks to my former Banting postdoctoral fellowship mental supervisor, 
and co-convener of the symposium at the U of A, Professor Janine Brody. From the first time that I broached the subject of having an international symposium with Janine, she was extremely supportive and enthusiastic. In particular, I would like to thank her for the hard work she did on our application for a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, SHRC, which the Canadians in the group, I'm sure, have heard of, of Canada um, Connection Grant, which, without which we would not have been able to hold the symposium and this book would not have been possible. I would also like to express my gratitude to the Department of Political Science and the Faculty of Arts at the U of A for their support and encouragement from the beginning as well. I mentioned above the Shirk uh, Connection Grant that Janine and I were successful in securing, which enabled us to have the symposium and thus ultimately produce this edited collection. So I would like to thank Shirk for their extremely generous support, without which we certainly would not have afforded to bring over uh, international speakers as far away as the Antipodes. However, to even be eligible for a Shirk Connection Grant, applicants have to secure 50% matching funding beforehand. As you can imagine, this was no small feat, and I have several individuals and institutions to express my gratitude to for helping us achieve this goal. Firstly, the graduate program in the Department of Political Science at the U of A deserves huge thanks for literally getting us over the finish line. In particular, I would like to express my gratitude to Janine again uh, for supporting a gift and kind support in the form of the services of a graduate research assistant. I would also like to thank the Arts Resource Centre and the Faculty of Arts at the U of A more broadly, especially the Office of the Associate Dean for Research, the Kuhl Institute for Advanced Study, the Faculty of Native Studies, the Centre for Global Citizenship, Education and Research, the Department of Sociology, and two Tier 1 Canada Research Chairs, Professor Janine Brody and Associate <coughs> Professor Imre Zeman. So as you can see, there was a lot of uh, people contributing to the pot. Um, I would like to express my gratitude to the wonderful contributors, of course, to this edited collection. Augie Flaris, Yasmin Abulaben, Brian Galligan, Joyce Green, Carwin Jones, Greg Lincoln, Audrey Macklin, Andrew Marcus, Kate McMillan, Tim Rouse, Kim Rubinstein, Paul Spoonley, Daya Vastasilis, and Mamari Stevens for their thought-provoking chapters, without which this book would not, of course, be possible. Actually, as I'm reading out all those names, it kind of really hits home how many um, chapters there actually are in the book. Um, I would also like to thank, firstly, Janet Phillips, a graduate research assistant in the Department of Political Science at the U of A, who did a stellar job with uh, helping me organize the symposium. Daisy Raphael, her replacement as a graduate research assistant, seamlessly took over from Janet and was a tremendous help in the latter stages of the organization. Daisy is also owed immense gratitude for her wonderful assistance in editing Audrey Macklin's chapter uh, in this edited collection. I hope this was a useful experience for Daisy as she and Audrey have common research interests. Okay. I would like to give my thanks to Palgrave McMillan, of course, the publisher uh, based in New York, for agreeing to publish this edited collection in the first place. I would especially like to thank the editors of the Politics of Citizenship and Migration series, William, Willem Moss and Justin Guest, for agreeing for the book to be a part of their excellent series. My gratitude also to Anka Puska for commissioning the edited collection in the first place, and Anne Schult for being such a wonderful person to work with through the process to production. My thanks also to Azwa Araya Nagarajan for her excellent work in the production of the book, and for dealing so patiently with the many queries from myself and the contributors to this edited collection. I would also like to express my gratitude to the Menzies Centre for Australian Studies at King's College London. Um, we have a representative of, uh, of the centre here, Bart. Um, it's great to see, great to see you here, Bart. Um, for providing me with a scholarly home and resources to work on this book. 
your continued support over the years of my academic career has always been appreciated. And lastly, but certainly not least, I would like to give my heartfelt thanks to my wonderful family and friends who have supported me throughout the process of producing this book, my first sole edited collection. And I'm, I mean, I will hopefully have others in the future, but I'm looking forward to having a break from editing collections because it was certainly an experience. Um, in particular, I would like to f express my gratitude to my mentors and senior colleagues for offering the pearls of their wisdom from books that they have edited in the past. Uh, you epitomize to me the collegiality of academia. Thank you. Mm -hmm.